Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, everyone. I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a communications and media professional eager to explore more effective ways to meet the legal needs of underserved populations. I especially enjoy speaking with leaders and innovators in this space. And today I'm speaking with two guests who took a deep look at an issue with intense consequences for families and children. Melissa Friedman is director of child welfare training at the Legal Aid Society's Juvenile Rights Practice in New York. She's a Harvard Law School graduate, has previously worked at a large law firm, and in her current role, she focuses on legal strategy and handles child welfare staff training. She also works extensively with the New York City Bar Association, where she previously chaired the Children and the Law Committee. Daniela Rohr is a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society's Immigrant Youth Project and was previously a staff attorney at the Juvenile Rights Practice. She is a Yale Law School graduate and, like Melissa, joined the Juvenile Rights Project as a Skadden Fellow. Daniela has represented youth in child welfare cases and currently works on the immigration team, where she represents unaccompanied minors in immigration court, family court, and before the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Court. Welcome, Melissa and Daniela. Thank you so much, Molly. We're really excited to be here. I'm glad you're both with us. As you know, I reached out to you after I read a pretty fantastic article and research um, you conducted that appeared in Columbia Law Review entitled Reducing Family Separations in New York City, the COVID-19 Experiment and a Call for Change. The research and article are fascinating, especially given what you were able to learn because pandemic-related lockdowns created this unusual opportunity to study abuse and neglect claims before, during, and after the pandemic. And I have a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, Melissa and Daniela found that child welfare authorities in New York separate far more children from their families than necessary. So let's get started with how you came to that conclusion, beginning with why you started the study. And I think maybe it would be good to start with really what it means to a child and to a family to remove a child from a home. Melissa, do you want to start? Sure. I'm happy to start. I think that what we see a lot in the child welfare field is that there are things that we know as practitioners, but that we don't necessarily have something to point to as evidence. Uh, So you'll sit in the waiting room in family court and you'll know that it's primarily black and brown families who are being targeted by this system, but then you're looking for a place to point to to prove that, right? And so we as practitioners, we being Daniela and I, Uh, know how traumatic removals can be for children. Most children should be with their families. So we saw the pandemic as a moment to say, hey, what happens when more children stay home? And lucky for us, ACS does actually publish regular numbers. Uh, It's called a flash report. So we looked at those flash reports to see if the numbers were bearing out what we thought they might bear out, that fewer children were being removed. And then when we saw that was true, we looked to see if there were any sort of co-occurrences that were negative. Were there an increase in ER visits related to abuse and neglect? Was there an increase in child fatalities? And we didn't see that. And even the commissioner himself at the time, David Hansel, said in his own words, uh, there was no bolus of undetected abuse or neglect during this time period, which made it sort of a perfect accidental experiment to look at, wow, do we really need to remove the number of children that we do in the system? 
And we think that the answer is no. And we've thought that for a long time, but now we have numbers and a social experiment to back that up. Daniela, can you talk maybe a little bit about the assumptions you were testing as you embarked on this research? It sounds like it started pretty organically with looking at reports and then starting to gather that information together. Yes. I mean, I think the longstanding assumption and the kind of the overarching assumption in the system is that high rates of removal, so removing children at high rates from their families, is necessary to keep children safe. That in you know certain cases, a child must be removed from their home in order to ensure their safety. And so that was sort of the main assumption that we were testing. And we found the early months of the pandemic to be a really interesting time and a really kind of only and unique time to do that because that was not an assumption that anyone had kind of the political will or the ability or the mechanism to test. Um, And then in March 2020, when everything shut down in New York City, including the court system, including the child welfare surveillance apparatus, you know, fewer um, caseworkers were going into people's homes. The courts were not accepting any child welfare filings that didn't seek emergency relief. So any cases that didn't seek a removal, the circumstances happened they, they presented themselves in this emergency moment. And so it gave us an opportunity to look at what would actually happen when removal rates plummeted. And in those early months of the pandemic, we saw rates of removal drop by close to 50%, which was really, really significant in the first time that had ever happened. So to answer and to kind of circle back to an earlier question you asked, it was kind of that moment of what we saw happening with what we knew as practitioners as being the impact of removal on children and trying to decide um, or trying to investigate and figure out whether or not these removals were actually necessary. And the conclusion we came to was no, largely. Kind of before we get into that, do you have thoughts on why the uh, removals in your area in particular are so aggressive? You know, in our paper, we do examine the legal standard in New York State for removing a child, which is actually a very high bar. Um, You know, there was a landmark decision by the Court of Appeals in New York in, I believe, 2004. It's called Nicholson versus Scapetta, which essentially said that the state cannot remove a child unless there is imminent risk of harm to the child and that there are no efforts or court orders that can be put in place to mitigate that risk. And then the court also has to engage in a balancing test and determine that the harm of remaining at home outweighs the considerable harm of removal to the child. So the legal standard is actually high and where we think it should be. Um, This paper is not calling for a change to that law. Instead, the way it plays out, we have found, is not necessarily the legal standard is not being carried out appropriately in many cases. And I think one of the reasons, and I don't know if it's just in in New York City, but it is a system based in fear. Um, And everybody is afraid that something will happen to a child and then it's on that ACS caseworker who made the decision not to remove the child or the judge who denied the application for a removal. And I think that's why the rates are higher than they need to be. But that's not what the law is. The law is imminent risk. And in fact, it was a change from the prior law, which was what was known as the safer course. Well, it's the safer course to remove the child. 
And the New York Court of Appeals is clear that the safer course is illegal. That is not the standard for removing a child prior to there being a finding of abuse or neglect. But I think to answer your question, I think it comes out of fear. I think there's also a piece of the legal standard that Daniela referenced that's really important to remember and to remind all players in the system of, which is that there's a balancing test. The harm of removal, right? There is a harm to removal that courts acknowledge that the law requires us to acknowledge. And that harm is enormous. We go through that in depth in our paper, but the harms are, you know, physical, they're cognitive, it's emotional. There's a statistic that we reported in our paper that sticks with me all the time, which is that rates of PTSD for children who've been in the foster care system are double that of of war veterans. And when we think of PTSD, we think of war veterans, but twice those rates are what we're seeing uh, in former foster youth. And so that trauma is very real. So do you think that that's one of the... because even with a, a high standard, it's still very subjective in many ways. So do you feel like, especially as you dove into this, that you started to see that that part of the balancing test was not being performed or not given as much weight? I think even before diving into this, this is what we knew as okay. practitioners. And that it's exactly what Daniela said. Fear really underpins a lot of the system a fear of what could happen, and then some sort of fundamental belief that the system can save or help children without the requisite acknowledgement that the system harms children sometimes more than whatever circumstance they were coming from, if that circumstance existed. I can definitely relate to that fear component as I see headlines in in Illinois in particular. I'm based in the Chicago area, and I can't imagine that this is just a, a really tough area to legislate and to administrate and uh, to adjudicate in the courts. So I want to ask about something that really drew me to this, which is that kind of early in the pandemic, there was this major concern that cases of abuse and neglect would actually increase during the pandemic because, you know, in addition to the additional stressors of the pandemic, job loss, job furloughs, that families were being penned up together and that cases of abuse would increase. This was a fascinating part of your findings that at least on the child welfare aspect, these concerns weren't necessarily borne out. And I'm wondering if you can explain why you think that is. I think we don't necessarily know the answer. As you mentioned, there were significant amounts of resources that became available in the early months of the pandemic and in further months of the pandemic to um, particularly low-income families in the form of cash assistance and tax credits across the board. And so one of the things we discuss in our paper is how easily the system and courts, how easily they confuse and conflate neglect with poverty. And that many of the things that really stem from poverty and can really be addressed by addressing the poverty are distinct from neglect and should be thought of that way. Um, And so if we can address the underlying issue of poverty by providing these forms of cash assistance, that very much can address a lot of that. And we do have a number of statistics from studies that we can cite. What we saw is that there were a number of major organizations that came out in support of the cash assistance that was offered to families at the outset of the pandemic. And one thing Danielle and I have long said as practitioners when we were colleagues and friends before writing this paper is that if you provide assistance upfront, 
at the outset, you can avoid the necessity for intervention on the back end. And so some of the major organizations were the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, They found that state spending on benefits programs strongly associated with the reduction in maltreatment. And so we are seeing one of the things that came from the pandemic is that there was just a stronger social safety net because of this state of emergency we were in and that families and particularly children really benefited from that. And there are other pieces to this. I mean, we don't have numbers on this. This is an opinion that now I'm I'm saying to you. But there were obvious hardships to the pandemic, death, job loss, illness, et cetera. But there were some benefits, especially from a caregiving perspective, of not having to, for example, get a child to school. So educational neglect is a cause of action for neglect in New York. And if homeschooling was what was happening, then then the, that cause of action would be minimized. And things of that nature, having to leave home and decide between missing a day of work or leaving your child home alone. There's, you know, there's a lot of decisions that come into play there that people did not necessarily have to make at the heart of the pandemic. And we see that in family court, right? Like we have all seen cases where extra supports could be put in place that could have obviated the need for child welfare intervention in the first place. And I think that is part of what we're advocating for with our papers, that these extreme remedies of removal, we should not even need to reach this question if we are helping families appropriately. And one study I'd love to see is one that shows the economics of this because the child welfare system is extremely expensive. And I believe it would be a lot less expensive to provide families with what they need at the outset rather than responding in a crisis. Do you think that, I mean, I I feel like the work you've done in this initial study and the paper is kind of lay out some of that framework on what could be looked at and what you've identified some of these areas of support that would make a difference. Can you talk about maybe some of those? You, You mentioned a couple with cash assistance, but are there other things that you're seeing like the truancy is a huge one? That's just a nationwide issue. So I'm curious if you could identify a couple other things that came out maybe either validated some of your assumptions or surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're actually just, it's a question of meeting basic human needs, right? So housing, I mean, cash assistance, which we were just discussing, I think is critical. But what does cash assistance do, right? It stabilizes housing. It stabilizes access to food. I think access to regular childcare is critical. I say that as a mother of two young children myself, and I struggle with childcare, and I don't have any of the barriers in front of me that a number of the individuals in the child welfare system do. And so these are huge hurdles that if we could if we could address those and perhaps pour more resources into those, we would not have to pour as many resources into a child welfare system. I would add to that also access to high quality mental health care, both for children and for parents. I think, you know, mental health and struggling with mental health and behaviors that result from those struggles, that is a cause of action for neglect. And so to be able to address a parent's mental health challenges up front before it gets to the point of a neglect filing, I think would be hugely helpful. And a child's mental health. I think the tension that that, that a, str- a child struggle with mental health can create between a parent and a child can often lead to circumstances that lead to a neglect filing as well. So I would say mental health, access to high quality mental health services, as well as substance abuse treatment services. I think most of the families we serve are on Medicaid and the wait lists for those services that accept Medicaid in New York City are very, very, very long. Um, And then it's very difficult even to have kind of 
continuity and providers, the turnover is very high. Did you find that that there were solutions that made themselves available or became available during the pandemic? And I, I was thinking specifically about access to mental health with telehealth options. Um, and then also similarly with, you know, parenting, you know, it's hard if even if you're, you're going to court ordered parenting classes or support, you have to go somewhere, you have to leave your house, you have to find childcare for your other kids. That's a burden itself. And then if you do that. There are consequences to that that could impact the claims against you for abuse and neglect. So I'm wondering if you're seeing any of those solutions that popped up during the pandemic out of necessity become more available or whether you see that as an ongoing solution. I do think access to virtual services and virtual court appearances is very useful here. I'm not saying that all court appearances and all services can happen virtually, but to the extent that they can, they really do save families time and increase compliance in terms of to the extent that that is counted. And, you know, when there's reporting about a family, number of classes attended is reported, contacts are reported, missing court is, you know, meaningful. And so that increased level of access is important. But also when we're talking about access to services, mental health, healthcare services, I think there's also a conversation that started, and I don't know if this is born directly out of the pandemic, but it does seem to have happened since, which is a conversation around mandated reporting and reporting. And so when you are, for example, engaging in mental health services, a number of those individuals would be mandated reporters. And there's now a large question out there, not just in New York, but across the country about the role of mandated reporting. Does it need to be mandated? Could that reporting be not mandated? And then would that maybe shrink the number of reports that come in to maybe those that are more necessary rather than the sort of gray borderline or for fear of not catching something types of cases? And so I think all of these things overlap and interplay with every benefit. You know, there's often also a a flip side, and that's an important conversation that's happening in New York right now that we hope to explore at some point soon. And I'm curious how significantly race played a role. I kind of expected that, would have had that assumption. But I think in one of your findings was that you found 91.9% of the removals were either Latino or Black during one of the periods. And I was just struck by that. Um, And I saw you did this kind of overview of some alternatives in other areas of New York with race-blind approaches. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the disparities that surfaced in this report and some of the solutions you're seeing or would like to see more of? So in terms of the disparity, yes. And and that is true, not just of the pandemic. That is the system in New York City pre-pandemic, during the pandemic and post-pandemic very much disproportionately impacts Black and brown communities. So the statistic you were referring to, I think, is that in 2019, 91.9% of children were either Black or Latinx, so 55.5% Black and then 36.4% Latinx. And there was also a recent study of ACS workers themselves. I, I believe it was ACS's own study and that shows that they themselves believe that the system as designed and as implemented is predatory towards Black and brown parents. So, you know, as Melissa said earlier, we knew this and we know this always seeing who comes in and out of family court but the numbers are very striking. And in addition to, you know, sort of just racial bias in decision-making and in investigations and calls, the reality is that 
these families, for the most part, or in, in large part of the populations that we see come into family court, are living in over-policed communities. So conduct that may go completely unnoticed in a very affluent or white neighborhood in New York City is witnessed and caught and reported on because families are living in, for example, homeless shelters where there are staff members present and there is a lot of police presence. Um, And so, you know, family getting into an argument, I think we have a line in the paper, and maybe this is more specific to a New York audience, but a family fight in a homeless shelter leads to very different outcomes than, you know, a family arguing in a beautiful brownstone in certain parts of, you know, Prospect Park and in Park Slope. So it's very much the reality of the system. And ACS itself acknowledges this disparity. We are, we got most of our numbers from ACS. There's some really interesting city council testimony. I think David Hansel gave it himself about the racial disproportionality in the system. And the study that Danielle is referring to was of ACS's own frontline workers by ACS. Andy Newman published the findings in in the New York Times a number of months before our paper came out. So with that, and because a lot of this data came from the Administration for Children's Services, are you seeing any changes or adjustments? I think one of the things you said to me before this was that maybe not as much as you would have expected. That's exactly what the the outcome has been here. We have been looking at the numbers. We've continued to track them since we published our paper. And we can run through those if you'd like. But in short, the numbers in 2009 were We look at a time slice of April to June each year because those are comparative to the depths of the pandemic. Um, And so in 2019, from April to June, 709 children were removed at the first appearance of a child welfare case. And then, you know, in the heart of the pandemic, April to June 2020, only 379 children were removed. That's a huge difference. What we were hoping to see after the pandemic with all these lessons we believe that the system should have learned is that those numbers should have stayed about as low as they were, you know, at the heart of the pandemic. What we unfortunately saw, though, is that those numbers began to tick up. And so in that same time period in 2021, the number was up to 411 removals. That same time period, 2022, 496. And in the most recent reporting time period that we were able to gather before this podcast, the number was 492. So it seems to be leveling out around the high 400s rate, which is, you know, lower than it was in 2019. So that's better. Some lessons were learned, but it's still higher than at the depths of the pandemic. And what we always say is that numbers can't tell the whole story, right? It is not an absolute that the number should be no more than the number that were removed in the depths of the pandemic. And it's also not to say that fewer children, fewer children could have been removed at the depths of the pandemic, and maybe that still would have been fine. But what we don't like seeing is the trend, the upward trend, because you have to remember that that legal standard is very strict. It is a very high bar to remove children. And so as the you know constraints of the pandemic ease up, we think that we should still be holding ourselves to that very high standard in the system when it comes to removing children. And perhaps we're not as much anymore. And, you know, if you compare the number of children removed at the height of the pandemic, April to June 2020, with what we're seeing now, the months December 2022 to February 2023, that's the most recent data set that ACS has put out, you know, that is over 100 more children being removed. And 
you really have to understand that as a whole child and a whole family's life. That I think it's very easy as it's our, our paper is based in statistics and so it's very easy to get lost in numbers. And when you're looking at numbers that are so big, you say, well, a hundred, you know, hundreds, not that many. But when you think about it in the context of what it means for a child in their family and what it means for their long-term well-being, it really is really significant, especially when, as we argue, it's unnecessary. Yeah, that that trauma stat just really hits, doesn't it? And it's traumatic for the child and the family and yes. siblings and extended family. It's just, it, it creates a, a massive crisis uh, on top of probably other crises that are happening. And just to note too, that the foster care itself is very traumatic. So we talk about the removal as being traumatic, which it, it is hugely so. But then even once a child is placed in foster care, that trauma continues. You know, there is frequent home changes. There's abuse and neglect within foster homes in certain congregate care settings group homes or residential facilities, we see sex trafficking, recruitment, overcrowding, overstays. So the trauma compounds. I think one thing that people also may not realize is that when a child is brought into foster care, they're not necessarily going directly to a foster home, right? There are what are called youth reception centers. And so the trauma of a removal compounded by the fact that the child is then going to a congregate care setting, even if it is just for a short time, but unfortunately, sometimes it is for quite a long time while they find an appropriate home. All of these pieces of this process are traumatic. And that is why the Court of Appeals required the harm of removal to be balanced alongside um, any possible harm at home. That really needs to be considered. You answered one of my questions, Melissa, talking about how you're continuing to look at the numbers. I'm wondering what's next for you. Are you looking at the numbers in the same way compared, you know, kind of keeping this piece going, but then are you diving into something else? You mentioned the economic study. Sounds like that's not something you're looking at doing, but maybe hope somebody will. (laughs) I love this question. I would love to look at the economic side of it. We haven't done that, though. I don't take that off the table for us. Danielle, I don't know what you think. Um, But Danielle and I are planning to write another paper. What we came to at the end of this process is that the numbers really tell a story about the law and they're useful in conjunction with one another. And when it comes to remands, that's useful. But I guess, fortunately, it is a small percentage of the affected child welfare affected population of the surveilled population that is getting to the point of remand. What we realize is that if we're going to take seriously this concept, you may have heard the term narrowing the front door. If we're going to take that seriously, we need to look before court intervention. We need to look at reporting and investigation. And the statistics on that are absolutely wild. There's a, a data set that just came out that we can we can share with you. One of their findings was that in the beginning portions of 2022, the re- most recent data that they had, of calls that were made to the state central register were unfounded in terms of abuse and neglect. That means 75% of the cases that are investigated, there were no findings of abuse or neglect. And an investigation can include things like strip searching a child in the middle of the night, going into a family's home. These are incredibly invasive and traumatic, you know, strategies that are taken by the child welfare apparatus. And so what we hope to do next is compare what children's rights are under the Fourth Amendment, under New York law, and then show that the way that our system sets up reporting and subsequent investigations really tramples on those rights and the well-being of children. 
Is that where you'll pick up some of that thread you were talking earlier about the mandatory reporting? Yes. It sounds like that probably leads to some of the volume. Exactly. And I, I do think that when it comes to mandated reporting, if there is a mandated reporter, there is then a consequence for a failure to report something, right? And one would hope that if there's going to be reporting, you would report, you know, irrespective of having to do it. But when it is mandated, then that fear of you yourself getting in trouble can cause over-reporting. There are actually some, you know, we talk about this in the paper, there are some bills out there pending. Right now is actually a family advocacy day up in Albany in New York. And one of the bills that they're talking about relates to anonymous reporting. A big problem is, you know, people who report anonymously and are using it as a weapon, et cetera. There's also another bill pending that's hugely important that's been dubbed the Family Miranda Bill. Uh, it's actually really just asking for individuals' rights to be read to them at the first interaction with with child welfare authorities, much as you understand just from common TV language, you know, you have a right to remain silent, et cetera. That's called being Mirandized, and the bill is hoping for the same for parents who interact with the child welfare entities. And just to note, the statistics that I was talking about in terms of investigation and reporting, uh, the New York City Family Policy Project has been aggregating statistics that were released to them through ACS. And they've been doing a great job taking the numbers and just trying to show what the numbers show. So asking questions and then giving answers with the statistics. So we've been utilizing a lot of their work to begin thinking about our next work. So I have a couple other questions, but I do want to ask, how do you even begin to tackle that issue of fear? It seems so widespread. You mentioned one, one of the fears is fear of getting in trouble if I don't report. You know, the fear that you'll make a mistake and a child will be harmed has to be the overarching fear. So that balancing test is really important, but there seems to be other ways to address that level of fear in advance of a reporting. Are there ways to train reporters differently in addition to the investigators? It's a good question. I do think, or I wish is maybe a better way to frame it, that everybody in the general population, because many reporters do come, they are not necessarily mandated reporters. They are neighbors or it could be anyone. Anyone can make a report. And as Melissa said, they can do it anonymously. I do wish there was a greater understanding and acknowledgement of the trauma of removal and the trauma of foster care so that everyone who is making a decision at some point in this process is able to engage appropriately in that balancing test and realizing that it's not just, oh, well, this is a little concerning. I'll just, you know, we'll just remove the child or I'll just make the call to really help them understand what the consequences could be for a child. And that's not to say that they therefore shouldn't, if there is a serious concern, they shouldn't make the call or the, the removal shouldn't happen, but to really, really balance it in the way that the law and the way that now the social science has shown that it should be balanced and to really show people what is it like for a child to be removed from their home. You know, we see it as practitioners. If you have seen an in-court removal of a child, you know, quite literally a child being pulled from a parent's arms, that will forever change how you balance this. If you can really visit some of these congregate care facilities or these placement sites and understand what it is like for a child um, or some of these visitation rooms, you know, children in foster care have a right to visit with their parents. And a lot of the times it's supervised in these 
very sterile, empty rooms that are very difficult to get to and very crowded. And so if people could understand what it meant for a child to be removed and what happens after they make those decisions, I would hope it would kind of serve to counterbalance the fear that understandably exists. And I think the core of what Daniela is saying is the antidote to fear is information, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can have information about supports, about what do the facts look like, about the fact that I think um, this is a statistic off the top of my head. I think it's more than 90% of child welfare cases are about neglect and not abuse. And most of those causes of action relate directly back to poverty. You know, if there's more information out there, then that can really minimize the fear that underpins this. And we have to remember, we cannot ever guarantee safety, right? You can't guarantee that when you get into a car, right? You can't guarantee that at any any moment. And so the idea that we might be able to guarantee some sort of safety or safer course for a child is is sort of a, a false sense of security. And so to the extent we can use the numbers that we're seeing to give information to people to combat the fear that they have that drives this system, then we'd like to, to do that. Well, thank you. Um, before we wrap up, we're running out of time, but I'm hoping you can share how other legal aid organizations can benefit from your research and maybe learn how to replicate your work in their areas? Yes, I think, you know, just to back up for a second, we do hope that, you know, this is an academic article published in a law journal, and but we do hope that practitioners here in New York use this, you know, kind of in court and at the critical points of decision making to change how decisions are made and to inform decision makers on this issue. Um, with respect to other kind of states or jurisdictions, I think if your local child welfare agency makes data available, that is the best place to start. You know, you could look at the data as we did from the early months of the pandemic and then make an argument from there, uh, depending on what happened as the jurisdiction reopened, as we did if the local social service agency doesn't make that data available, you might want to consider filing whatever is available in your state um, in order to access government documents and information and statistics, and really just kind of take a look at what's happening. I think as practitioners at a legal aid organization, you know, we can both speak firsthand to how easy it is to kind of get caught up in the day-to-day and putting out the fires and meeting the immediate needs of the clients, which is obviously paramount. And so it's hard to take a moment and step back and try to look at data and look at overall trends to try to enact some kind of meaningful change. But we found to the extent that you can, it can be very powerful. This seems like a great opportunity to partner with a local legal clinic or university setting to help with some of this work. Sounds mm-hmm. like a great high impact project. If I can make a pitch for collaboration. We love collaboration. And in our next endeavor, we hope to do much of that. All right. Well, any other parting words before we close out today? We just want to thank you for your time and for taking this issue so seriously. We're excited that light is being shed on this issue on behalf of our clients. Thank you, Melissa and Daniela, for joining us today. And thank you, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Talk Justice. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to rate us and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts can be found so you won't miss an episode. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. 
The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.